The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Spring Seminar, Moods and Medicine, Biblical Hope for Strugglers. Writing a book is not a great place for people who struggle with self-image. <laughs> I, um, and I would tell you this, if you only have enough money to buy one book this weekend, buy mine. <laughs> Thank you. Right now, my dear wife is not here because we have a relative that she's visiting with. She's visiting in San Diego with right now. I think right about now they've met and are probably heading off to shop. And with that going on, I really don't know how long I can afford to stand here and talk, to be honest with you. (laughs) We've been married 41 years. Um, We have four children and 12 grandchildren. And I, uh, I credit that all to the grace of God and the patience of my wife. Well, what does it take to uh, get labeled depressed? What is, it, what is required today to get the label of depression? I really do understand what it takes to get the label of flu. Uh, you know, all you have to do is uh, sit by someone on an airplane who is willing to share you know, cough for three hours <laughs> while you're the captive audience. And then you head off to the doctor and um, you have a, you're sitting on the table with that temperature of 103 and they put the mask over you because they don't want whatever you have. Or, and of course, you're you know, almost choking to death, coughing and trying to breathe through the mask that's on your face. And, and then the nurse comes and she has that little swab and you know she's going to ram it up your nose and do a brain biopsy or something like that? Any of you had this happen? Or are you all just really healthy? Um, and then within eight minutes, voila! You, uh, we know. Either you have the flu or, or you have something else. And that's relatively simple. On the other hand, getting the label of depression is a little bit more complicated. You could be like the woman I talked to this past week who lost the most important person in her life on earth, her grandmother, and who simply, after a couple of months, couldn't get over it, or like the psychiatrist that I read about who, uh, whose sister was killed on 9-11 in the towers, and who, who said that he struggled through everything he could think of and then just finally couldn't go any longer and, and ended up with the label of depression, could not come to grip with loss, Or you could be the 17-year-old that came bouncing into my office about six weeks ago and announced that she thought that she needed to be on medicine because a couple, three weeks earlier, she dumped her boyfriend. And she was sad. Or you could be like the young woman who left home and boyfriend to go off to college for her freshman year and found it to be a lot harder than high school. A lot of work, and between struggling with the work and the sleep deprivation and the 1,000 miles she was from home, became morbidly depressed, viewed herself as a failure, and wanted to kill herself. You could do it that way. Or you could be like Susan in my book, who woke up one morning with a new set of aches and pains, and after a couple weeks of rest and ibuprofen, wasn't any better, and so she went to see her doctor, who was a very kind, caring, and meticulous physician, and who at Susan's insistence ordered every test known to mankind. But at the end of six months worth of negative histories and negative physical exams and negative laboratory findings and a multitude of medications that did not seem to help, 
The kind doctor wondered if Susan's pain might be a symptom of depression. And of course, Susan had seen the commercials. You've seen them, haven't you? The ones that go from black and white to color. You know, in advertising, they call it A minus A plus. And in the black and white portion, the person is sad and hurting, and the voiceover says that depression is, depression hurts. Depression hurts. It's the current equation of physical pain with depression. And she, so she'd heard that, and then her doctor said, well, maybe you're depressed. And, and after that, it was, uh, you know, a, an antidepressant. And then after five years, she woke up one day and realized she didn't feel one bit better and had been on multiple different kinds of medication, sometimes two and sometimes three. And that's how she got the label of depression. Or maybe you could be the one in ten who will be labeled with a diagnosis who simply can't say what it is about life that makes you sorrow, but it does. And you just hope to find something or someone who can make you feel better. And I would tell you in that sense, hope is a very good thing. When I think about our societal definition of depression, I think about the word hope. And when I see people who are depressed, generally uh, they are so because for one reason or another, they've lost it. Hope uh, with it, the sufferer, hope, with hope, the sufferer has a prayer to escape the the darkness, and without it, we drowned. And I would tell you that today in, in, in medicine, that hope has stalled. The 1980s were uh, a, a fascinating time in, the, in, in depression and medicine. As, and I, I was practicing medicine at that time, and the, the folks from Eli Lilly, the reps, would come around and tell us that Lilly had discovered the cure, or the cause. First they discovered the cause, which of course was, what's the cause of depression? Okay. Come on, louder. Chemical imbalance. Yes, it was a chemical imbalance of serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine and those kind of things. And, and they had the cure for it. They had a medication that would fix it. And I can remember sitting in the doctor's lounge in the small hospital that I worked in in Lebanon, Indiana, and shooting the breeze with other doctors. And one of them suggesting that maybe the best thing we might do for our town of 50,000 in the middle of no place uh, would be for one of us to climb the, the ladder on the water tower and take a 50-gallon barrel or drum of Prozac and dump it in the water. You know, I don't tell jokes. <laughs> I really don't. And the reason why I don't was because I, I had a friend tell me that I shouldn't. Because <laughs> if I could tell jokes, I wouldn't be here. You know, I'd probably be doing late-night television or something like that. But when I discovered I couldn't tell jokes, I, that's why I decided to go to medical school. <laughs> So, but I appreciate it when you laugh. I really do, even though most of the things I say might not be very funny. Um, and when you do those evaluations, could you do me a favor? Could you write on there that you like the jokes? Because <laughs> it drives the people crazy who read about it because they don't remember the jokes I told. <laughs> now, I can tell you that we did just about dump it in the water supply because if you go to Portland, Oregon today and you go to the river that is downstream, you know, the, the, the river that leads away from Portland, Oregon, and you analyze the mud, you know what you're going to find in the mud? You're going to find Prozac. Yeah, it's not cleared by the waste treatment plant. 
And so there it is. We, we, have, we wrote prescriptions probably as fast as we were writing them for penicillin for sore throats. But the problem is, is that instead, when you have the cure, when you have the cure for a problem, when somebody says they know the cause and you have the cure, what should you expect would happen? That the numbers of people who have it would decrease, yes. And that is not what has happened over the last 30 years. Instead, we've gone exactly the opposite direction. Instead of declining, it has increased. I can tell you that the number of people who have been who are being treated for depression between 1987 and 1997 went up by 300%. And I I would also say that I don't believe the trajectory of the increase has changed very much in that period of time either. Oh, another, now, why would, what would contribute to that? Well, I would tell you that I think probably one of the things that has contributed to it was the new class of medicines that appeared in 1988, the SSRI antidepressants. Prozac was the first. And when, when, it, when we were detailed as physicians, when the, when the drug reps came and they told us, uh, and told us about it, a couple of things that they said that didn't prove to be too true was that it had no side effects, or nearly no side effects. That was entirely not true. Um, and, um, but one thing was true about it was, and that is you couldn't kill yourself with it. You could take the whole 30-day prescription and, and swallow it all at once, and you might inconvenience yourself and a lot of other people, but, but you wouldn't kill yourself. And I can tell you that up until that time, most all the medicines that were used to treat people who were depressed uh, if you took a whole 30-day supply at one time, it would kill you. The tricyclics, the elevils, and the triavils. And as a result, very few physicians were really very willing to treat people who were depressed because about the last thing in the world you wanted to have happen was somebody end up dead in their bedroom clutching the bottle of pills that you had written for them. Just didn't want to do that. I can remember writing for seven-day prescriptions for Elevel because I did, didn't want to write for any more than that for someone who, who was uh, struggling, struggling with depression. Well, Prozac wasn't that way, and as a result, uh, a, a wider number of physicians would write it. Uh, almost all family physicians would be willing to write prescriptions for it. Internists would be willing to write prescriptions for it. Neurologists would be willing to write prescriptions for it. Gynecologists would be willing to... uh, Physical therapy physicians, dermatologists, uh, pediatricians, and now um, nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. And I can tell you that as you increase the number of people who can write for a prescription, what you do is increase the number of people who will get that prescription. Um, and so that's contributed to the increased use of the medicine. And, and you know, truthfully, and, and it has doubled from 1995 to 2005, the number of prescriptions written for uh, the SSRI antidepressants has doubled in the United States. And again, the trajectory is still going up. It is not declining. Now, that probably wouldn't be a really big deal. You know, if if actually it was doing some good, but there is a growing sense that um, the rapid increase in diagnosis and treatment really isn't helping nearly as well as we'd hoped. In the January 2000 issue, 2010 issue of the Journal of Medical, the Journal of Medical 
the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA. There was an article that said this about the current antidepressants that we use, and that was that if you looked at all the people who take them, that there was little or no benefit from the use of the medication for nearly 90% of the people who take it over a placebo pill. And a placebo pill is a pill that looks like but does not contain the active medicine. And, um, and you, you know, you'd put them in two groups and the, uh, uh, what they found over a large number of studies over a decade was that for people who were mildly depressed, moderately depressed, and even severely depressed, mild, moderate, and severe, that when you compared the two groups, placebo versus drug treatment group, that they didn't separate, that there was no essential difference between the improvement between the placebo group and the, uh, and the treatment group. Only when you got to very severe depression, which is the last 10% uh, of those who take it, did, um, did it appear that the medication seemed to make a difference in, in the outcome. If it is hope that I am going to get better, and that's what placebo effect is, if it's hope that I am going to get better that seems to drive the benefit for most of the people who take these medicines, then once again, hope seems to be dimming, stalled, stuck. And the reason for it is, is that the theory which has been the foundation for all that we know of and say today about Depression and bipolar disorder and any number of other um, uh, uh, behavior problems that we are now calling um, mental disorders. Uh, the theory that underlies it is really in tatters. And the reason why it's in tatters is because for the last 50 years, we have been looking for uh, a chemical imbalance in, in, in humans that would correlate with the behavior and we found none. Thomas Insel, uh, last summer, he, at least at that time, was the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. That is not a biblical counseling organization, the last time I checked. So it's not like, you know, it's not like some Bible thumper wanting to steal your pills or something. Uh, this isn't what he is. Uh, he is a physician and a psychiatrist, and of this he said that there has been, there is no biochemical imbalance that we have been able to demonstrate. And I can sure, assure you that they have been looking. Now that's not all that bad. It really isn't. And the reason why it's not all that bad, because the least hopeful thing I can think of as a physician is making a diagnosis and then prescribing a medication when the diagnosis could be wrong and the medication may not work. But hope springs when someone realizes it and starts looking for a better answer and better treatment. And so the National Institute of Mental Health uh, this, this past summer announced that they were moving their research money away from medical treatment for depression and towards cognitive behavioral therapy. And the reason why is because if you look at that 90% that I told you about, the, the mild and moderate and severely depressed people, those 90% actually do better uh, if they go talk to someone, imagine that. Uh, if, they, if they just go talk to somebody, and, and they will actually stay better longer if they just go talk to somebody. Um, now, I don't know that they're actually going to find their, the answer to depression in, or sadness in cognitive behavioral therapy. In fact, I kind of doubt that they will, but I'm really glad they're looking because one of the things 
that uh, has happened with regard to depression over the last 40 years is that, you know, once you think you found the answer in medicine, guess what you quit doing? You quit looking. Yes, once you think you know it and you have a treatment for it, we don't look for ways to treat strep throats. No, we don't. (laughs) Why? Because we understand what it is. And we certainly have the best treatment that exists currently to this point in time. So we're not looking for new and better treatments for strep throats. And, and that is what happened to depression. It got stuck for 40, for 40 years. Hope in medicine is, is powerful. Hope is a powerful thing, period, but hope in medicine is really powerful. Um, it is illustrated in a, a research study done by a brave orthopedic surgeon at the Veterans Administration. Uh, did it in the 1990s, and at the time, what he wanted to know was if the most common surgery done for osteoarthritis of the knees actually helped. That's what he wanted to know because he had this sneaking suspicion that all these surgeries that they were doing, it was the kind where they would put a cut in both sides of your knee, put an arthroscope in, then they would flush the knee out, get all the loose junk out, and then they would go in and kind of trim things up, make it look better, they hoped, Uh, maybe try to repair any tears that were in it or remove parts that were torn and were getting caught so that your knee locked up and things like that. And what he suspected was, was that this was a waste of time. And what he proposed to do was uh, have a, a group which got the full meal deal surgery, one group, a second group that got rather minimal surgery, and then he was going to compare the outcome for the two. And, and along the way, someone who was doing the approval for the, for the study said, you need to have a placebo group. And somebody said, well, you know, how do you have a placebo group when it comes to surgery? Well, they they did it. And the way they did it was, was that you would be enrolled in the study. uh, You would uh, put the gown on. uh, They would shave your knee. uh, They would put you to sleep. They would make two cuts on both sides of your knee and then sew the cuts up. They would dress your knee in the same dressing that everybody else got. They would send you to physical therapy, offer you the same pain pills, treat you just like you had the surgery. Now, you, you tell me, out of those three groups, the people who got the full meal deal surgery, the people who only got minimal, and the people who actually got none, who do you think got the best pain relief and who had the best function over time out of those three groups? Three, those three groups. It was the placebo group. Yes, the people who had absolutely no surgery done did better than the people who had it all, which, you know, resulted in the VA saving thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars because they quit, you know, and when you're not, when you're doing something that doesn't work, the best thing to do is quit. Yes. And and he he told the story in one of, one of his, the publications of the fellow who would come back and tell him how that the surgery that had been done had so changed his life and how and how he could play with his grandchildren now and that and and that you know he could just get around so much better and the guy said he didn't really have the heart to tell the fellow (laughs) yeah that he had been in the placebo group yes yeah the, the folks who had the placebo surgery after after surgery had less pain and if you looked at them in two weeks and six months and two years later they had less pain, less requirements. So hope, hope that you're going to get better is a powerful thing. Now, how does that work when it comes to depression? Well, you know what, folks? It really works just about the same. Yes, someone did a study in 2002, and these studies have been replicated, much to the confoundation of the folks who make the medicine. 
Um, they compared St. John's wort, which is an over-the-counter uh, medicine that uh, is used to, uh, by people to, who are depressed, and they compared it to Zoloft, which is sertraline, which is one of the SSRI antidepressants, and then they compared it to placebo. And what they found was that the people who took St. John's wort got fully better 24% of the time, and the people who took sertraline got better 24 25% of the time, and the people who took placebo got better 32% of the time. 32% of the time. And this is not an inconsistent finding. I would tell you that hope is a, is a good thing, particularly when you put hope in the right place. Um, someone asked me, why do you think in the world that happened? Well, I would say that there weren't any side effects um, with, the, with the placebo group because I can tell you that taking antidepressants, they do do things. These are not medicines that are ineffective. And, and the things that I see with regard to it, there are all kinds of side effects, including um, sexual dysfunction. The, the big one that I see most is it actually changes people's personalities. As you watch them and as they take it, their personality will change. And generally, their main complaint about it all is that they don't either feel up or they don't either feel down one, one way or the other. And it, it, they don't always view it as a comfortable thing. Um, as one uh, writer said, uh, these medicines don't cure anything. And they don't. They don't correct anything. What they do is induce an abnormal state in the person who takes them. And the question is, is do I prefer that abnormal state over the state that I was in before I took it? One or the other. Now, don't misunderstand me. I write prescriptions for these medicines for people. And I'll talk about that a little bit more as we get down the road. I'm, I'm, not, I'm a physician. I'm not anti-medical. And a, a lot of times people get all hung up in this issue of whether or not it's right or wrong to take medicine, you know, for depression and things like that. And my response to it is, is that is the wrong question. You know, the, it's not a matter of whether it is right or wrong because it isn't, and I'll tell you that later, but it, it's a matter of is, is whether it works or not. You know, that is the question that we should have been asking all along, not whether this is correct or incorrect. Is does this medicine actually and really work you know, with, the, hoping, with, with regard to this, all this hope that's either misplaced or displaced, there was another study done that was actually very encouraging. It was published last year, and it said that it, among individuals who took medication for depression, that those who believed in a God who cared about them, and that was an, an important phrase, they specifically had to believe in a God who cared about them, not just a God, not just a God who's waiting for you to get up there with the switch, you know, to give you the beating that you deserve, but a God who cares about me. When you compared that to the general population who did not believe that, the people who believed it were 75% more likely to get better taking medicine than the other group. So not only is hope a good thing, when we put it in the right place, it becomes powerful in the room, in, 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 the, uh, in, the, in the area of mood disorders. Well, I can tell you this. What I think is the most hopeful thing in medicine today is to get an accurate diagnosis. Um, the problem with mood disorders uh, in general is that the criteria that we use to make those diagnoses simply do not work well. Um, and they don't work well because of the way they were set. The, um, the mood, the, uh, let's just, yeah, leave it right there for a second. The, um, the le- what, what they call it is the level of inference. 
is set so low that just about anybody can trip in. And it's, uh, it's where did you set the bar in order to make the diagnosis of depression? And the bar has been set so low that it captures people who have absolutely no disease problem, but who simply are sad. Now, I know that sounds kind of strange, but it really is kind of hopeful. And the reason why it's hopeful is, is, is because, like my friend uh, that I'll be visiting with tomorrow in, uh, up by Riverside, she lived in Elkhart, Indiana for uh, forever, and um, she, she and her husband, great musicians, would come down at Easter and Christmas and play for my choir and orchestra. And um, what, uh, about 10 years ago, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is not a very hopeful uh, kind of problem to have. And um, it, during that 10 years, she uh, took all the medicine with, at great expense and with all the side effects and, you know, did sort of okay, but never really thought she was doing very well with it. And then a, a rather miraculous thing occurred. Her company changed insurance companies. The co- you ever have that happen to you? You know, there's some poor people, they get a new doctor every year. You don't even get to learn his name or find anything out about him hardly because every year your company buys into different insurance policy. Well, it used to be that way. Who knows what in the world we're going to have from this point forward. But that's another lecture. Um, the, uh, so she had to change neurologists. And the next neurologist was not willing to take the word of the last neurologist without doing some tests himself. And he repeated everything. And do you know what he decided at the end of it? She did not have multiple sclerosis. And I can tell you that even though she had spent a lot of money and went through a whole lot for 10 solid years, finding out that she didn't have it gave her hope. Finding out what was really wrong with her gave her great hope. Now, the problem, of course, that we have with depression is that there is no way to validate the diagnosis. None whatsoever. What do I mean by validated diagnosis? You know, if you came to me and said, you know, Doc, I, I have to put five glasses, and I've had patients tell me this, I've had to put, I had to put five glasses of water on my nightstand so that I can reach over every once in a while and get a drink because I, I, I can't make it through the night without drinking water. And, and Doc, I, I, I go to the bathroom all the time and, and, and you know, and just a quick drink in the water. No, the, uh, and, and, and beyond that, I've lost 25 pounds and, and I, it's not like I'm dieting. In fact, I'm eating everything I can get my hands on. And you know, I'll sit there and listen for a minute. What disease do you think I think they have right then without even looking at them hardly anymore? What? Diabetes. Yes, that's right. I, I, their history. I, I, their history will tell me. And then I'll do a physical exam that will probably add to the diagnosis. But while I'm doing that, maybe even before I do the physical, I yell out the door and ask Kelly to come in. And would you stick this lady's finger and let's find out if her sugar's 500 or 1,000 or something? And... But, and what, you know what that blood test does? It validates what I think about the diagnosis. That, that, and that has always rescued medicine. A blood test that will tell you that you're right. And unfortunately, when it comes to mood disorders, we just don't have it. Another aspect of, of, of this crisis that I think that exists with uh, the diagnosis of depression is that the chemical imbalance theory just doesn't fit the data that we're seeing today. There is a drug in France. Now, you, you all can tell me. 
Now, why do people get depressed? Tell me, what, what, pardon? Okay, they're sad, but what happens in their brains? Okay, all right, their serotonin is lowered, yes. And so we put them on the medicine, and it's supposed to do what? Increase their serotonin, right, okay. Well, there's a drug in France that's being used right now that when compared to the drugs that we currently use in the United States works just about the same, and guess what it does? It lowers serotonin. Yes. So the problem is, is the theory doesn't fit the, uh, the, the observations that we're currently making. The real problem is that we don't have a pathologic um, definition of the disease. Medicine has always done very well as long as we knew the pathology. You know what I mean by pathology? It's the, the difference or the malfunction at a cell level that results in a, in a, in a, in a part of your body working in a different way. It's when it's when your Hashimoto's thyroiditis attacks your thyroid and, and all of a sudden your T4 is running at 18 instead of 11. We, you know, when we have that kind of pathology, we, can, we know what's wrong with you and we know how to fix it. And when we lack that pathology, we're usually making guesses. And those guesses can sometimes lead us in very difficult directions. And I would tell you that that is what is going on currently in the arena of mood disorders, mostly educated, educated guesses. Now, research is going on still in this area, and it's encouraging. Uh, I um, because if 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 research continues, the, the re- recent research I read was one that said that uh, the, in which they were actually doing autopsies, and and they claimed that they'd seen something that might indicate that uh, the that they understood what area in the brain might be affected that might result in persons having a genetic disposition to getting depressed. They didn't say they knew it. And I don't know that, that they will, but what encouraged me, one, was that they were actually doing research, and two, it included actually looking at cells, not just doing Hamilton rating scales and Zung rating scales and assuming that because it moved two points that you know, what we're doing is working. So research is going on, and that's good. The great best outcome was if, the, if they do discover what is the pathology that underlies Uh, what is currently called medical depression in the United States and then develop a test for it because then we could uh, sort out all the over-diagnosing and over-labeling. I can tell you that there is real hope for the 90% and I really think hope for the other 10 as well. If we come to understand again in our country what the difference is between normal sadness and disordered sadness. And that, that is where I think all the all the ground is to be made. Currently, there is a, um, a growing movement in psychology and sociology and in the psychiatry field that it says an important error is being made when it comes to mood disorders and the way we talk about sadness and sorrow and depression. As one writer said last summer, nobody talks about being sad anymore. They don't. What do they say? I'm and that's because we've been taught to do that. We've been taught for the last 30 years that any sadness that we have that hangs over for more than two weeks is or needs to be called a disease. And that's because we've forgotten that, that it is normal and even good for us to be sad and to sorrow. It's a great book. You should get it. You should read it. Buy mine and read it first. 
But you should get this book. It's called The Loss of Sadness. It's written by Jerome Wakefield and Alan Horwitz. It's a secular book. These guys aren't biblical counselors in any way, shape, or form. But boy, do they ever lay out the case for the fact that we've made a huge error since about 1980 in the way that we look at sadness and sorrow in life. What they say is that sadness is a normal part of our biologically designed being. Um, Of course, what they mean by that is evolution. As I said, these guys aren't necessarily Christians, and I didn't read anything that would make me think that they were or weren't one way or the other. But I can tell you this, and this is probably the best part of what you're going to hear this morning about depression, and you should listen very carefully right now that for the vast majority of people who will come into you and say, I'm depressed, or I've been diagnosed with depression, you will be able to separate out the ones who may have a medical problem versus the ones who probably don't. And the issue is whether or not they can tell you when and why they became sad. Almost everybody that I told you about in my, that opening, had a reason and had a day upon which they became sad. And the reason why they became sad was because they lost something. They they lost something that was very important to them. And, And those people that you will see will not have a disease. They are simply sad. They're sad over losing something that's very important to them. It can be almost anything you can think of. The list can include things like jobs, status at work, Divorce, health issues, loss of physical health, big deal. Setbacks at church, loss of friends, marital discord, the death of a pet. Uh, You know, I've seen people who've lost a a pet, and I thought we were going to have to get a psychiatrist to talk to them because they became profoundly depressed over the loss. For them, it was real. And then there's children. You notice I didn't put a qualifier with it? Because children have all kinds of unusual ways to bring sadness into your life at times, don't they? Yes, they surely do. And then there's loss associated with aging, and I can assure you that at the age of 62, there are losses. Anything, and I mean anything that you value, that maybe you think you cannot live without can be lost. And after that comes sadness. And what uh, Horowitz and Wakefield said is that this is entirely normal. And that in order to meet the criteria of the DSM-IV, soon to be dsm 5 in order to be depressed, you only have to have it for two weeks. And I can tell you, losing your job, having your spouse die, and in the dsm 5 having your spouse die will not have a two-month uh, exclusion anymore. Grieving will become depression. And that's what this is really all about, folks. This is the misidentification of grieving as a disease. Grieving is not a disease. As some guy wrote this past week, uh, somebody sent me the article, grieving and worry are not diseases. That's what he said, and and he's secular. I can tell you that sadness over loss can kill your appetite, rob you of sleep, take your sex drive out of gear. You can cause you to quit enjoying things that you've always loved and that are very important, like golf. Nobody in here? No. Oh, well. Maybe only a doctor would think golf was important. Um, What is it they used to say if you're going to have a heart attack on Wednesday afternoon, have it on the golf course? Yeah, that was it. That's right. Yeah. 
It can leave you fatigued and crying, and rightly so, for a time. Yes, we're supposed to grieve our losses, but at some point we're supposed to stop grieving our losses, aren't we? So, normal sadness occurs when we lose something that we value, and it fits the situation. It's like the lady who gets stopped by the state trooper, and he's going to write her a ticket, and what does she do? She cries, and it usually doesn't do her any good, does it? No, not a bit. But after a week, she's not crying anymore, is she? No, she's figured out how to pay for it, and she's moved on. It Intensity and the sadness correspond to the size and the duration of a loss. But if you take that same woman and she's driving down the interstate and the semi hits her car and kills her child, I can tell you it will open up a hole in her heart that may be there for decades, may never go away. Occurs, corresponds to the size and duration of the loss, and it resolves when the problem ends or we adapt to it. The guy who gets the job and who's all down in the mouth stays there until what? Until he gets the next job. And that poor 17-year-old who lost her boyfriend or threw him out, you know, what does she need to do? Maybe a new hairdo, some new clothes, and yeah, she'll get a new boyfriend, and then it'll be over. Yes, it it resolves when the problem ends or we adapt to it. That's normal sadness, and I can tell you that in 1975, when I graduated from medical school, that was not depression. In fact, we were taught that if they could tell you why they were sad, they didn't have major depressive disorder. The only people who had major depressive disorder were folks who just couldn't tell you why they were sad. And sometimes I wondered if they just didn't want to tell you why they were sad. Nonetheless, that really cuts it down to about 10%. So, ah... Disordered sadness. Disordered sadness was uh, first noted in medicine by Hippocrates, who said it was a melancholy mood that comes without reason and stays far too long. A couple of good quotes about it. Cotton Mazur, the Puritan preacher, said, These melancholics do sufficiently afflict themselves. They make themselves as miserable as they could be from the most real miseries. I don't think he was being a smart aleck. I don't think he was trying to be funny. I think he was being entirely accurate. He was simply describing people who were sad and who had no obvious reason. And that, folks, was what we called depression in 1975, and it was not all that common. It wasn't rare, but it wasn't common. And if we limited the, the diagnosis of major depressive disorder to that group of people, we would cut cut it by 90% today. I told a dear friend of mine that I had been talking to for probably two months just exactly that, and she said that for the first time in 18 months, and 18 months earlier, she had sustained what anybody would call in life a huge loss. And she said, I went home that night, and for the first time in 18 months, I had hope because I could say I'm not sick I'm just sad. Yes, I'm just sad, and rightly so. All right, we'll skip Benjamin Rush. So, in 1975, that's what depression was. Normal sadness probably accounts for 90% of what the current diagnosis of major depressive disorder is in the United States. And this is very important The reason why it's very important is because if we... Do you remember the 90% numbers? Ah, there are two numbers now. Both came up 90%, didn't they? The first number was people that the medicine didn't help. The second 90% are the people who are normally sad and not disorderly sad. 
And I think that, you know, to me, that is where, that's where the two things come together. You put the two transparencies down to use an old, uh, old technology, and they match. And the, and the problem that we are facing in the United States today is we're taking people who are just normally sad and who've lost stuff, and we're treating them with medication, and all they get out of it is side effects. It doesn't change their life. Now, I tell you, I do write prescriptions for these medicines. And the reason why I do is because uh, it's, it's, and I, I always say this, it's a Romans 14 issue. I'll give you the short Romans 14 issue course. You know what Romans 14 is all about? It's the argument about whether it was good to eat meat or not and vegetables or not. Yes, and the meat was offered to idols and the vegetarians thought they were more spiritual and the, and the, um, the, the meat eaters thought that they were more knowledgeable and, you know, of, the, of the faith and they were judging each other. And what does Paul say about it? Remember? Doesn't matter. <laughs> yes, it makes absolutely no difference. If you eat meat, you're not going to be any better off. And if you eat vegetables, you're not going to be better off. But what really irked him was that they were judging each other over it, right? Yes. And out of that grows what doctrine for us? What's the doctrine? Christian liberty. Yes. That means that when the, the scriptures do not specifically speak about an issue, uh, that we are faced with today, that we have the liberty to choose what to do inside the confines of Scripture, inside the confines of the rest of Scripture. It, 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 so, I can tell you that today, medicine, there, the Bible says absolutely nothing about whether it's right or wrong to take antidepressants. Nothing. Zero. Zip. Nada. And the reason why it doesn't say anything is because it didn't exist back then. So, you are faced with a Christian liberty, a Christian liberty choice. And so when people come in to see me, I will tell them, you know, there are two ways to deal with your issue, you know, the problem that's making you sad. I can send you to talk to somebody or I can send, or I can put you on medicine. And usually the reason why they're there is because they're asking for medicine. And I say, which do you want? If they choose, they want to talk to somebody, then I can, then I can spread out and tell them, you know, you can go to a a uh, pastoral counselor, which will be a biblical counselor, it, uh, or I can send you to see psychiatrists, sociologists, etc., so on and so forth. Or, uh, you know, I will write you the prescription because you have the liberty to do so. It's, and, and, so I, and so I do. Um, but the important thing for us to understand is that, and, I, and it's what I tell them, if I write that prescription for you, you should understand this probably does have side effects. It will affect your personality and it won't change your life. It won't. It will not change anything that's going on in your life. And if the reason why you're sad is because your dad's divorcing your mother and they're getting along like, you know, two, two cats tied up in a sack and, 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 and you're struggling because you're caught in between it, you can take that medicine. It will change your personality, but it's not going to make your mom and dad any easier to deal with. I told a lady that. She went home, took the pills for two days, came back and said, you were right. You were absolutely right. And, she, and, and, I, and I'd also told her, you know, and if you live long enough, that'll get better. One way or another, it'll get better. All right. So, moving on. The concept of disordered and uh, normal sadness ended in 1980 in psychiatry because Robert Spitzer was in charge of the uh, revision of the uh, DSM. And... Um, the, uh, he left out cause. He, for whatever reason, and he said it was, the reason why he says he left out cause is one of the criteria. Up till then, you know, we had that divider out 
for disordered versus normal sadness that was implicit in the DSM, but he took it out. And the reason why was because he said there were several competing theories as for why people got depressed, and he didn't want to pick one. And so he just took cause out. And what he did by doing that, unfortunately, was widen the diagnosis without giving us any, uh, any testing to validate it. He made it possible to, to increase the number of people who would be labeled with depression, which is what's going to happen with the DSM-5, with, when they take the grieving exclusion. The grieving exclusion said that if you lost your mate, you had two months you know, to get over it. After that, you should not be depressed. I mean, it's sort of ridiculous when you think about it, but, but nonetheless, it was in there, and that's coming out. So if you're, if you're struggling and sad after two weeks now, if your husband dies... Uh, you um, probably depends on how long, well you got along with him, I suppose, and, or, or how much, or whether he left you broke, or with that million-dollar insurance policy. Oh well, and it actually does depend on it. There's a study I haven't got time to quote, but but it's it's kind of funny. Um, but anyway, knowing the knowing this difference, and knowing that the criteria have been changed so that it that it doesn't recognize that becomes. I think the most hopeful thing we can do in biblical counseling, because I can tell you, you can identify the 90% of people who can tell you when it was what happened to them that was so bad that has left them sad ever since, and then you can help them deal from a biblical viewpoint with the sadness that they face. Now, what good is sadness? Well, when it's a normal part of our being, it draws support. When the... um, when your next-door neighbor dies and leaves a widow, what happens? Well, usually, not always, but usually the family shows up and they come to help. And the neighbors, they show up and they come to help as well. When hurricanes hit, the Red Cross shows up and we all send money and things like that. So it draws support. It also serves a protective function. Uh, uh, it keeps us from fighting on when only... The, all that would come to us is harm. It's like the fellow who gets in a dispute at work and, and he chooses to quit because he, he, working there is, just hasn't been a ball of fun anyway and he just doesn't see any point, point in fighting it anymore. And what it protects him from is hanging around long enough to get fired. I, you know, I, sometimes sadness protects us, us in that way. And as well, it can also be use, useful because we'll generally quit doing things that are failing because they make us feel bad. So sadness, sadness that's what Hurwitz said, uh, it, that it did. Now, I can tell you that, that hope is found in the way we see sadness in Scripture. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You're all probably wondering if I was ever going to talk to anything about biblical, part of biblical counseling, I suppose. Starts in verse 5. Paul talks about being sad, doesn't he? You follow along in the text, and I'm going to just be talking about it. In verse 5, Paul says what? That he was in difficulty, that he had no rest, that he was afflicted, that he was in conflict, that he had fear. Paul was in enough difficulty that it says in verse 6 that he was downhearted, discouraged, or in the NASB, it says that he was depressed. And I would tell you that I think Paul was a perfect example of normal sadness. 
The reason why Paul was normally sad was for all the reasons why he wrote 1 Corinthians. And I can tell you this, that if you're a pastor here today and you had the things going on at your church right this minute that were going on at Corinth, you would be sad. (laughs) You'd be outraged. (laughs) You'd be angry. You'd be all kinds of adversely emotional things, wouldn't you? Yes, and so Paul was discouraged. And then you get down to verse 6, and what does it say? God, but God who comforts the downhearted, the discouraged, the normally sad, the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. What an amazing thing. God cared about how Paul felt about all this. And I would tell you that God cares about how you feel when you lose things that are important to you. And God sent that comfort. Who? In the form of Titus, who'd also been comforted by the fact that when the first the Corinthians got that first letter, they did what? They repented, didn't they? Yes. It drove them to repentance. And then in verse 8, Paul, Paul reminds the Corinthians that he knew that he had caused them sorrow with his letter and that it, it, he didn't mind it at all. But then he sort of does this thing where he says, but, but I did mind it. It sort of reminds me of when my dad used to look at me and say, son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I didn't believe that for a minute. Did you? No, uh-uh. I didn't believe that for a heartbeat. I think that's what Paul meant by this. He, he was glad that the Corinthians were sorrowful, and he viewed it as useful in verse 9. And the reason why is because they sorrowed to the point of repentance. They changed their behavior, and the, and, and the improvement that they received, and, and the approval that they received for it drove them to repent. And Paul said that was great, so that the Corinthians might not suffer loss. And that is normal sadness. It drew help from Paul. It drew them to repentance, and the sorrow protected them from continuing in the same sinful behavior that they'd been in. And the sorrow that Paul inflicted on them caused them as a church to abandon their a church strategy of simply ignoring a serious sin problem that existed in their church and start acting like they were normal. And the beauty of it is seen in verse 10, isn't it? Yes. Where, where Paul says in verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance. The sorrow that is according to what? The will of God. Yes, it is God's will that we have sorrow on occasions in our life. That's what C.S. Lewis said. It's, it's the megaphone that God uses to speak into our lives to draw us to him. So it produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. When we sorrow according to the will of God, it produces repentance. When we sorrow like the world, it leads to death. And I can tell you that sorrow can take you one of two directions. It can either take you to growth or it can take you into this, the, the current sorrowful way people in this country are living. And it is sad. Now, all right, James 1, 2, you might turn there. There are two ways in Scripture of dealing with sorrow. Sadness. Actually, there are three in life. You can stay in it if you want to. You can just be there. I have never found that inviting. Have you? No, I never have. What I really like is Psalm 30, verse 5, where it says that weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. 
And, you know, while I have been known to say that anger is supposed to end at sundown, and I really do mean that, and the reason why I mean it is because I think that anger is supposed to end. Before you go to bed at night, you have to find a better biblical way to deal with the problem than to be angry about it, and or to get up the next morning and resume being angry about it. I think it's unbiblical to do that. Quite on the other hand, I do not think the psalmist meant that if, you know, a hole just got blown in your life, that when you get up in the morning, you're supposed to be singing zippity-doo-dah. I don't think that's what he means. But what I do think he means is that eventually it does come to an end. It does. You know, I, I, I know that in my life that sometimes it is comforting to cry. It really is. But, you know, after a while, you run out of tears. You know what I mean? And you can sit there and you can cry for a good long time, but after a while, you know, it's just not as much fun as it was when you started, was it? No, I mean, it really isn't. Yes, the, the, the reason and, and, and why you are doing it ceases to be, I think, profitable. I guess you just run out of tears. And at that point, we get to choose. We get to choose between James 1 and 2 Corinthians 7, or staying stuck where we're at. James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy. My brethren, when you fall into various kinds of trials, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience or perseverance, and, but let perseverance have a, her perfect work, that you might be perfect and mature, entire, lacking in nothing. I really do like what J. Adams says in his note on this word, count, which means to count, reckon, to determine, or consider. Consider. He says that the Greek word hegeomai there, literally carries with it the connotation of picking your thinking up at sorrow and carrying it over to joy. It is a process. And, I, and, I, and it doesn't happen overnight. And I can tell you this isn't the first verse I'd hand to somebody whose life just got a hole blown in it. I just, I wouldn't do that. I'd rather go to Psalm 46 and, and verse 10 and, 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 and work at being comfortable. But I can tell you this eventually eventually most everyone who's in this struggle will view it as a great relief when they, when they, when they come to the point that they see that, that there is a way out of the sorrow that they are living in. You know, eventually you're looking for the door. That's what I think about all of it. And so James says, move your thinking from sadness over loss to joy, my brothers, knowing that the trying trial that you're in produces endurance and eventually maturity, and I call that the considering process. When we meet losses that hurt our hearts, we get to choose at some point to move from weeping to joy. And I tell you, I think we will move through fear and worry and anger and envy and maybe other things. But while we're doing it, we'll be moving to trust and peace and confidence and love and grace the question becomes whether or not we want to choose to grow in a Romans 8, 28, and 29 sense, whether we want to look at it the same way God does when he says all things work together for good, good, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And his purpose, of course, is not that we should be healthy, wealthy, and wise and always have what we want, but instead that we should be conformed to the image of his Son. And I would tell you, of all things most important, that it is grace that is the power behind all the change. Period. It is God's grace that enables us as believers to move, to move from sorrow and move to joy and see it as Jesus did when he looked at the cross in Hebrews 12, 2. 
I can tell you for certain that, that, that if you read Ephesians 1 and 2, you will find that it is God who intends to use the Holy Spirit living inside our heart with the same power that he used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead to change us. And it says that we are his workmanship, not our own. We are his workmanship, and that he is working in Philippians 2.13 uh, in us to do his will and his good pleasure. It, it is he who works in us. It is by grace. The change that we see in James is not a matter of good people doing better. That just adds a burden to the sorrower, doesn't it? Yes, it is not good people doing better. Instead, it is sinners being carried along by the grace of God to a place that he has predestined for us to be in. It's, it's not swimming up the waterfall, which is a lot of what people think of when they think of Christian growth and change. It is not by the, you know, reaching down and grabbing your own bootstraps and pulling yourself out of the mud. Instead, it's being carried along by the tidal wave of grace. It's just like standing in front of the tsunami and, and having God pick you up and take you where he wants you to be. It does require us to do, but, but, but he will empower the change. And when we see change in that gracious light, it gives the struggler hope. Yes, and that's what we're about. We're about hope, real hope. Then there's the third choice. It's 2 Corinthians 7.10 and this is when, if we choose not to move our thinking from sadness to joy as believers, and if we instead and choose to respond with behavior that the Bible describes as sin, unjustified anger, prolonged fear, worry, envy, drunkenness, any other number of things that uh, the Bible describes as sin. And, and Paul says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. I can tell you this, once we have mired ourselves down in the mud of life and, and, and have refreshed it with our own tears, we get the chance to change our minds. That's what repentance is, metanoeo. I get to change my mind. We can, like Eve in the book, turn from sorrowing like the world and choose at that time to respond in a biblical way to the trouble that we're facing and the loss that we suffer. When you look at biblical characters uh, that fit the uh, um, normal sadness model, uh, Nehemiah and Joseph fit. I don't have time to lay that out for you. I can tell you that hope in sadness is found in a purpose, in a plan, in a person with regard to our suffering. And the place I like to take people who are struggling and have been struggling long is John 11. It's my favorite passage of scripture to park and exegete for folks who, they've been struggling for six months to a year and, they, and they, they want help. They want out. And it's a simple outline. You can read the whole chapter yourself later, but it's a simple outline. You know the story. It's Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Lazarus is dying and will be dead. And Martha and Mary are struggling with the why. You know, it's like when Jesus gets there, what do they say? If you'd been there, my brother wouldn't die. How do you translate that into modern terms? It's where were you when I needed you? Yeah, it's kind of smart aleck, isn't it? Yeah, keep that in mind. Keep that thought in mind because you, know, you go back and read later and find out how, what unkind thing did Jesus say for the smart aleck remark that both Martha and Mary made to him about that. And the answer is zero, none. Just, he just lets it go right by because he's watching them struggle 
struggle with their sorrow and their sadness. But the outline is, first, that Jesus knew. And God does, doesn't he? Yes, Jesus knew about the uh, suffering that, uh, that Martha and Mary and Lazarus were going through. And he had a plan for it that was different than theirs. Imagine that. I guess he had the right, didn't he? Something about sovereignty in there someplace. Providence and sovereignty. So he knew and he had a plan, which didn't include him showing up before Lazarus was dead. And then we know from on in the chapter that Jesus cared, didn't he? Yeah, because when Martha had come out and then Mary had come out and Mary collapses at his feet crying, what does he do? He cries, he weeps. And tell me, why? Why? In five minutes, he knows what he's going to do. What's he going to do? He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he still weeps. That's because he cared about the suffering that um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus had to go through so that God's purpose and his glory could be worked, right? Yeah, because there was a purpose. I mean, you get into chapter 12. So many people believed on Christ because Lazarus rose from the dead that they not only wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. Yes, glory and, and purpose. And then finally, the last point is that Jesus acts. And that's a great four-point process of how to deal with people who are struggling. Um, Jesus acted on their behalf. It's sort of like the scene from The Princess Bride. You remember the movie? That's when, is he dead? No, he's just partly dead. Oh, no, he's completely dead. Or some of you remember this. I'm going to find out how old the crowd is by the movies I talk about. It's when I mention Ben-Hur that I lose everybody. <laughs> I may be the only living person in the room who's seen Ben-Hur. You know? Yes, good movie, great movie. Yes, anyway, and Jesus says, roll away the stone and watch Martha say, he stinks. <laughs> you don't want to do that. He's been in there four days. And you know what I, you know what I thought about when I read that? I thought, you know, you know what must have been running through Jesus' mind? And, it, and it's the question that I think I have to, I eventually ask everybody who's been struggling for, for six months, a year, with sorrow and sadness, and they don't know what to do. It is, when do you want to leave the graveyard? How long do you want to stay here? You know, go roll the stone away, and we will leave now. And, that, and so when you know, I look at people at sorrow, that's, that is, that's what I tell them. When do you want to leave the graveyard? Then you need to find someone who will walk through that sadness with you. I think that's church, isn't it? That's called small groups, adult Bible fellowships, biblical counselors. Biblical counselors need other people in church to, to come alongside, hold accountable, encourage, strengthen, um, be a brother and sister in Christ to individuals who struggle. And then I can tell you that hope is found in grace. Hope is found in grace. Uh, two years ago, a, uh, an event happened in my life that really was big. It was big, and it was not good. And I, I can remember at the outset, uh, I would go out in the morning, and I would start running, and I didn't exactly want to, but I knew that I had to keep running, and I had to keep breathing. That's what I had to do. And I did. I, I remember another fellow 
you know, under the guise of comfort that uh, you get to comfort other people with. Six weeks later, another guy had something really ugly happen in his life, and I, I remember telling him, I said, I, you know, I don't know how that's going to come out, but I tell you, you need to keep running, and you need to keep breathing, and in six weeks, it will be different, and it will probably be better, because that was my experience. I'd lived through it. I could tell him. So, about two weeks into it, I had to go on vacation, I say I had to go on vacation because uh, a long time earlier I'd already bought the tickets, I'd already made the plans. I could tell you that had I not bought the tickets and I had not made the plans, I would not have gone. But I was coming out here to to, uh, the uh, Orange County area to visit cousins and friends, and and so I I did. You know, it's just like I didn't have anything else to do at the time, so I, I went on a vacation that I thought was pretty useless. And when I got there, of course, I went to church on Sunday morning at Covenant Presbyterian Church, and there was Pastor Stan Vandenberg. And, and of course, I mean, completely by accident, he just happened to be preaching on Hannah. Yeah, he happened to be preaching on Hannah. And um, I, I remember two things very distinctly that he said, because I wrote them down in the margin of my bulletin, and they're in my book. He's in the book. And the first one was, the problem's that we face as Christians always have a purpose. Nothing is outside of his reach, and all of it is part of his plan for our good and his glory. And Hannah in Hebrew means grace. That's what her name means. Hannah is an, is an, old, example, an old Testament example of what God, can, or what God does in the life of his children. Hannah lived with infertility. In a bigamous marriage, her husband was a bum. He had two wives, and uh, one of them had the the other one had kids, and she didn't. And of course, the one who had kids made fun of Hannah all the time, and Hannah cried a lot. And this went on for years. Every year, she would go down to the tabernacle, and what would she do? She, she'd sit there and she would cry. And had she lived today, she would have been diagnosed with what? Yes, absolutely. And probably would have been treated and would have suffered because of it and have been no better for it at all, period. Zero zip, because that was not what Hannah was about. And it wasn't what Hannah's situation was about either. Keep in mind, in verse 6 of that chapter, I think the first chapter in Samuel, it says that God had closed her womb. Yes, this, this, this wasn't an accident. This was the sovereign action of a sovereign God providentially working in the life of someone, and it made her sad. Yes, it really did. And that's a hard concept for some, but it's the truth. Hannah's problem wasn't childlessness, and the growth that you're going to see in her hasn't got anything to do with pregnancy. The growth that Hannah was going to do had to do with whom and what she worshipped. You know, at the start of the story, Hannah was in the give me children or I will die mode like uh, Jacob's Rachel. And I can tell you that the action of grace is seen in her life because Hannah goes from being the woman who couldn't live without children to a woman who could give that child up and rejoice while she did it. That's in it. That is the difference. That's where the story is. It's not that I'm not pregnant and I'm going to have a kid and, and, and it's all over with. No, no. It is, I'm going to have a kid and I thought I couldn't live without it and I'm going to give that kid away. Give that child up. And I can tell you that is grace. 
Grace is when God takes you in the middle of your sorrow with your loss and moves you to the point that you can grow and change and become more like Christ and then have the same kind of joy that Jesus did when he looked at the cross of Calvary. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Growth occurs in our lives when we change how we respond to loss after we grieve the loss. As I said, people who are widows and widowers, usually they grieve pretty badly for about a year. And why is that so? I always wondered why it was a year. And it's because it's the first. Yes, it will be the first birthday, the first Thanksgiving, the first Fourth of July, the first Christmas, the first New Year's, the first anniversary. It'll be the first of everything. And then after that first year, it's over, isn't it? I don't know that the grieving's over, but I can tell you the, the, the first part of it's over. And it's a good thing that it is. I watched my, a friend of mine do just that. It was right for him to grieve. It was also right for it to be finished. And Hannah's sadness ended with her pregnancy. But I can tell you that her spiritual growth was just beginning. And like Paul, Hannah put sorrow behind and started looking forward to the day that she'd surrender the one thing on the face of the earth she couldn't live without. Normal sadness. That's all Hannah had. Hannah just had normal sadness, and she could not adapt to it. And she didn't have the construct. And that's what folks struggle with today. And that is why I tell you that Hannah's name is Grace. It wasn't that Hannah was living under persecution and doing a great job of it. She wasn't. She wasn't doing a great job. The story is about grace. Then, then what else has to change? Well, for those who are, are suffering from loss and who are normally sad because of finding hope by grace means changing motive. And what does that motive have to become? It's 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Uh, I told this sentence to an anorectic, depressed lady and I, I once, and I've told it to hundreds of people since, and, and, and I told her, I think you can get better, but you have to be willing to say, I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. That means I want to glorify God with my life more than I want the thing back that I lost. That's exactly what it means. And if I'm going to do that, it means that I must love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and then love my neighbor uh, before myself. That's Matthew 22, 37 through 39. And what does that mean? It means I have to love God more than the thing that I lost. I have to love God more than getting back the thing that I lost. And that will help the person who's normally sad. And then I can tell you that if you love God, what does he say you'll do? John 14, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And we as individuals, because we want to glorify God and because we love God, will want to obey scripture and do what the scripture says instead of doing the things that we've been doing it's all we always justify sin when we're angry and bitter over loss you know that i just i invariably meet counselees and they're living in some sort of difficulty and the reason why they're there is because if god won't do this for me then i am going to do you know whatever it is that they're doing that the bible says they shouldn't be then aim of life has to change to serving god and others that's john 13 Washing dirty feet, great chapter. You know, none of the disciples wanted to get up and wash the feet because they all thought they were better than that. And so who gets up? Jesus gets up, doesn't he? He washes all their feet. And there's a great sermon in it. Uh, the um, 
John, uh, it's, it's Jesus washing the feet of the enemy, Judas. Judas was still in the room. Just an incredible sermon. And, um, and when he's done, what does Jesus say? You, he stood up, put his coat back on, and he looks at him and says, um, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me your Lord and Master, and you're right because I am. And I washed your feet. You ought to wash one another's feet. Now that you know these things, happy are you if you do them. It's just a, it's an amazing statement. When are Christians happiest? It's when they're washing dirty feet. Yes, when they're serving other people. And I always take anybody who's depressed, and, they, and the fir- one of the first things they get is a Christian service assignment, and it has, it's two hours a week, and it can't be for anybody that they're related to, and they have to be worse off. They have to go serve someone who's worse off than they are. And they can take nothing from them, and they, and they have to do it indefinitely. And it always changes their outlook. And so serving. You have to go from being a consumer of everybody else's good wishes and will to a servant. And then gratitude is therapeutic. I really like uh, uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss's book, uh, Choosing Gratitude. Uh, I, I commend it to people who struggle with losses, attention, um, so that they so that they can do as as the Bible says we ought, always giving thanks for all things. Um, then, um, you know that brings me to the end of the point in the notes that I want to go to because actually I'll talk about everything in the rest of these notes in the next lecture. So that's normal sadness. The, the key, the important thing that you'll come away with from this lecture is to be able to tell the difference between normal and disordered sadness. If you can do that, then you can help the folks who are, are stuck in the label of depression uh, who really don't have a disease but who need to change how they're looking at the loss that they've suffered. Uh, the other thing I would tell you is, is um, with regard to these kind of things, and I, I still have a minute, don't I? Yes, I'm doing okay. When he starts moving, I know I'm right out there at the edge. Um, the, um, is don't, don't counsel people according to labels. Uh, you know, I don't argue with people about whatever label it is that they come into the uh, counseling room with. I write it down and I note it. But with the anorectic lady that I, that I said that sentence to, when she came in, she was labeled with anorexia and uh, depression. And if I had agreed that that was her problem, I could have offered her no more hope than she came in with. Absolutely no more. And so I chose to set that label aside and ignore it and deal with her based on what her thinking and her behavior uh, was doing. And it made all the difference in the world. I'd encourage you not to counsel people according, according to their labels. Right, I think we'll stop, and Craig wants to talk to you. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.